Recorded live. You're now tuned into the VMware Community Podcast, your number one source on VMware news and updates. Interviews with V experts, product updates, new launchings, VMware events, and much more. Join the conversation now live with Eric Nielsen. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you may be across the nation or around the world. Once again, you're listening to the VMware Communities Roundtable Podcast. This is podcast number 655. My name is Eric Nielsen, and with me today, I have my regular co-host, Matt Longeth. Today is Wednesday, July 26, 2023. Matt, how's it going? Eric, I am well. I am back in the home office today after being remote uh, from the field from Pittsburgh uh, last recording. So happy to be back here in the office uh, the heat wave is coming here to the Mid-Atlantic. Over Thursday and Friday of this coming week, we are going to be in the high 90s with probably 80 to 90% relative humidity. So it is going to be typical July. But before we get to all of that, sir, my favorite questions. How are you? How are things out on the West Coast? And what is the color of the bay? I'm doing great, Matt. Uh, we're ramping up for VMworld. VMworld, put a quarter in the cup, explore. As 26 as days. Always. 26 yeah, days as of today. Going. Everything is funded. We managed to squeak everything out. So everybody's going to be there. Matt's going to be there. Code Labs are going to be there. We made the Code Labs bigger. Boy, it's, it's exciting times now. This is where the rubber meets the roads. We're busy. The weather's been beautiful here. It's been in the 70s and nice. And we don't have any of that humidity that you guys have I've heard famously are getting back on the East Coast. So uh, happy times right now. It'll get dry in August hot, though. So we'll, I'm sure we'll suffer. Uh, you know, I'm excited to talk about Oracle Cloud today, Matt. So uh, that's what we hang, hang here for a minute. Uh, we'll do a little bit of the Explore overview. I'll swing by Corey Romero. We got some uh, some good V-Expert news going on there. I'm going to ask him the big question. How many of the experts do we have? So, Corey, you can be thinking about that. It's um, that time. It is. It is. Uh, so, hey, uh, Explorer's happening. Go Reg if you haven't. You know, you can always stay in the Excalibur for like $29 a night, you know, and then, uh, you know, sneak under the main tent to get in. I don't know how you're going to get get your badge, uh, get a VMUG advantage and go, go, go come because the, the, the hub where we've got everything going on is going to be big. VMUG is going to be in there this year. We've got code lab tables. Uh, we're doing GPT chat REST API code labs. That's going to be fun. We expanded the number of seats. So there are, I think, another 100 slots open for the labs or will be this week. So stay tuned for that. Um, so that's good. We've got the code theater uh, with all the code sessions. Alistair's going to be here recording the brown bag sessions, VMUGs in the booth. we got a studio. We have a spreadsheet for the studio. If you want to do some broadcasting, there will be camera gear at the studio in the, uh, the hub so that you can get on a spreadsheet and make yourself look like you're live streaming from Explore. Are we going to try to do an episode from out there? We, we've tried in years past. But that we've done in years past, you know, and uh, just based on the, the availability of everybody, it's 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 kind of kind of challenging because we always say yes, but then you know I'm pulled in uh, 15 different directions. So for example, on Tuesday I'm driving my minivan over to Vegas, right? So we can we can late ship stuff in the back of the van, uh, and then uh, I think I'm going to do a pizza run 
to like six different pizza shops for the community pinball museum party. So just because we, there's nobody that kind of order, you know, a pizza for over a thousand people come into the pinball museum. So that'll be fun. But so the end the answer to your question, Matt, is it's, we always plan on doing this and then it the depends. data gets right. in the, the way. Console state of error. Yeah, exactly. So maybe we will, maybe we won't. Uh, so, but it's got, it, it's looking big, looking exciting. We're also I looked at Reg. I won't share the number here publicly. We had said a number last week on the on the podcast, and we, we had given some rough numbers. But the internal number it has picked up tremendously. I think turnout is is really going to be uh, is up there. Yeah, and up there. It, it will be great to see um, all the members of the community and and get back together again here in Vegas. Yeah, and uh, I know just for the CTAB org, we've seen a 30% increase in the number of members that are going to be there this year versus last year. So if that's any indicator of a good turnout, it would seem to be that it's going to be a busy, busy year. Plus, we're in the Venetian this year, so that's a really nice... Yeah, a little flavor spot. difference, right, as far as yeah. venue and whatnot. So yeah. it'll be yeah. interesting to see how that plays. I know we're, we're going to publish uh, notes on how to get... Uh, to the pinball museum so we've got a map okay. we've got a google map it's uh you're gonna Graphic walk a mile path yeah, you're gonna walk a mile but it's not that bad there's a train we're to show you how to do that or as i say if you really want the right directions just uh open your iphone flip to the left uh, click on the uber app and then put in the pinball museum address and away you go no problem here we are all right, Corey Romero, we'll flip to you for a second uh i know the experts have been uh, going on here what's happening Hey, let's, hey uh, how you doing, everybody? Um, so, Matt, I've got a question for you first. Um, uh -oh. Should I bring cigars to uh Absolutely. We have started a, tr a tradition in Barcelona, and I think we need to continue it again in Las Vegas. All right. I will uh, I will order them and bring them. Yeah, so for V-Experts, yeah, I've got some good, good news this week. Uh, we welcomed 106 new V-Experts from 32 countries um, into the program this week, which brings us to a total of... 1,503 V experts for the program of in 2023. Um, last week, we held a, uh, a webinar with the V experts uh, with uh, Rob Garrard, who is a V expert, and the topic was vast data overview with NConnect performance findings uh, with V expert Rob Garrard. Um, licenses for the new V experts should appear in the Customer Connect portal this weekend. Um, as long as there isn't any hiccups with IT, but everything has been submitted for the new V experts to receive their licenses. And uh, and that's all I've got. All right. Sweet, sweet. All right. Well, good good job, Corey. Over 1,500. Always always good to see new members uh, show up. I know the we had the lull of COVID where there weren't a lot of people doing evangelism and going to you know VMUGs and presenting. So it's great to see people back in action. So excited yes. about that. All right, uh, let's get to our, our guest today. So we have Todd Myhead, um, I don't know how to say his last name, and Bob Goldson. I can I think I got that one right. So let's start with Bob. Uh, Bob, we always start in the community podcast. Tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get here? Uh, what's your career arc look like? And uh, make sure you unmute when you do this. Uh, thank you for the unmuting. Yeah, I almost forgot about that. But uh, yeah, I've been with VMware uh, 13, 14 years. I can't exactly remember. I'm a staff architect in uh, the strategic ecosystems and in industry solutions business unit. I came to VMware via 
EMC. I was in the CPU office at EMC doing technical due diligence for uh, our acquisitions and uh, investments in startups. So uh, it was made a, a, a nice offer to come over to VMware post acquisition and and been working in the enterprise space since then. When you when you came here, you know, when you joined VMware, what is it, whatever, 13, 14 years ago, how long did you think you were going to stay? Um, I had no, I had no idea. And uh, VM is, VMware is just a fantastic company. I mean, I, the, co the colleagues, the people, the culture, uh, it's it just, uh, it's been a great ride. Right. Yeah, I know when I came, I thought I was going to do two years here. I left Sun Microsystems and it was all Solaris and Unix and Spark. And I was like, I'm going to come here and I'm going to just spend two years getting used to Windows again. And, you know, VMs mm -hmm. were predominantly Windows. And I think yeah, I'll spend just a couple of years brushing up on my skill set, you know, around Windows. Because when you went, I, I spent 15 years at uh, Sun and, you know, you just dive into Unix and Solaris and, you know, everything Sun and you're kind of out of touch with the Windows space. So I was only going to stay here for for two years but then here i am and it's like 17 years later so it's a long time thanks for that okay uh todd same question to you um sure yeah so my name is todd muirhead you're pretty close people mispronounce it all the time it's no big deal <laughs> uh i'm i'm in uh, vmware performance engineering i've been here for about uh like a few months longer i think is what it comes down to like 14 years uh, i do database performance mostly which uh, is usually Oracle and SQL Server. I also did a stint uh, with SAP HANA. I did the first testing of SAP HANA in a virtual environment and accomplished the first uh, certification uh, where it was certified by SAP to run uh, virtualized. So I worked with the starting up that team initially. Bob was also a part of that effort for a little while. Nice. Nice. I, got, uh, I remember when I SQL first came to VMware, I first came to VMware, there was a guy, Eric, uh, don't remember his last name, Eric. Rieger. Rieger. What's his name? Eric Rieger. Rieger? No, it wasn't Rieger, but no. the, they ran the performance team at the time, right? And then it went to an Asian guy that was a good guy as well. So I kind of have lost touch with the, who's over in performance these days. But uh, yeah, great group. All right, with that, Matt, um, we're going to talk about Oracle um, and you know our Oracle efforts in the cloud. So uh, why don't you uh, ask these guys some questions? So let's kick it off, right? We There is many of our SDDC as a service offerings that are out there right now within multiple hyperscalers. And now we have for, for a considerable time period, and I'll, I'll ask that of Bob and Todd, of how long one has this have been available as a solution, and why Oracle? What, why have we chosen as an organization to roll out uh, our SCDC as a service offering on the Oracle platform as a whole? Well, the... Offering has been out for, for several years. I don't know exactly uh, the release dates, but it, it's been out there. But you know, more importantly to your question as to, to why Oracle, um, you know, you know, Google is to, Google is synonymous with search. Uh, you know, VMware is synonymous with virtualization, and Oracle is just synonymous with the, with the enterprise. And 
you know, I think it's it's our, at least Todd and I, um, opinion that performance matters, and the way that Oracle has uh, form formulated their offering with complete customer control, as well as offerings on the AMD processor shapes, uh, really makes it, you know, the the choice when deploying enterprise workloads. And let's talk about uh, initial deployment sizes, right? Uh, for this particular offering, uh, when, when I think of, you know, an SDDC stack, I think of uh, three nodes. Is that a, you know, in, into consideration here as well for this particular deployment? And then also, as far as the number of cores per host, uh, if you let's just say we're looking at a customer that's looking to, you know, do a POC with this particular solution. Uh, what would be the, the initial configuration that a, a customer would require for both number of nodes? And then of those nodes, what's the minimum core that I could um, you know, purchase uh, to light up that POC? I, I don't know the, the uh, exact core counts there. Todd is more, uh, has the information on, on uh, AMDs. But you know, single node for a POC would 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 suffice. Uh, but there's other when we talk about number of nodes and also um, failover and high availability. There's there's some unique advantages when it comes to OCVS. And um, when when there is a failure, it's it's fully customer managed solution. So when there is a failure it's not an automatic remediation, meaning that a, a new host is not added upon failure. It's customer managed. And the ramifications of that is when it comes to Oracle licensing and, and uh, you know, just to preface, preface licensing, you know, that's a discussion with the ISV and the customer. But fundamentally, if you have an automated reme remediation with Oracle and you, and you, you add an additional host, and you have to fully license that host, whether it's physical or virtual. It's not a virtualization penalty or anything like that. Um, but so we're talking Oracle about has, licensing for Oracle. If we're going to be in full compliance with Oracle workload licensing, if that host within other solutions is on hot ready standby, we need to account for that to be in full compliance with those Oracle workload licensing. Is from what I'm hearing. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, whether it's in use or, or not, you're going to have to license that that host. With, with OCVS, you have the ability to manage that and add, add that host upon failure, or when you're alerted, or some notification comes through. So you don't have that that you don't have to license that host until it's actually active. And and there's also, I believe, a 24-hour window where where you need to remove the other host. Otherwise, it's going to. Otherwise, you're going to have to pay licensing fees. Okay. And then, what, above and beyond POCs, what is the the minimum number of hosts that are required? Three, I'm assuming. Yes. Yes. Three hosts. Okay. And, and again, is within other SDDC requirements that becomes a function of our vSAN capabilities, or vSAN requirements, I should say. So with, with OCVS, you don't have to run vSAN if you don't want to. 
So we, what would we be using for, uh, we'd Local just storage. be pro provisioning compute and memory at that time. And what would we be using for our storage domain for those particular hosts? Well, you can just use the local storage on the host. I, I'm not saying this is recommended. I'm saying it's possible. So if you if you if you're if you're okay with that, you're not worried about the availability, right? You just want to run a single host with storage. You you can do that. Okay. So let's just say I wanted to go up and I wanted to. T I had some native Oracle um, workloads that I have refractored, right? And I wanted to test deployments of. Uh, native vSphere VMs that needed to connect to those apps, but I didn't want to go down necessarily down the whole entire full-blown path of doing a three-host deployment, again, in, in POC terms. So I could spin up a single host. I could deploy that single VM knowing that I'm not going to have that fault tolerance that's there, but I could do and check to see what, what performance would look like as far as connectivity between that traditional VM to what would be a native Oracle hyperscaler uh, backed compute instance. Yes, that's an option. Yeah. And, and, and just to, to mention, you mentioned refactoring. That's kind of one of the benefits when it comes to OCDS is because you have full customer control, customer has full control. They can set up that VM identically to how it is on-premise. On and that's the way that, that Todd and I did the testing is that we wanted to show that when you migrate from on-prem to OCVS, uh, because you have that full, full control, you can set up the BIOS, the host, the, the VMs identically to what's on-prem and not be concerned about a performance hit um, with say grayed out um, parameters that you just can't, can't alter. So this is, truly um, zero refactoring when it comes to migration. I mean, for, for the test that we did, I, I just did a cross vCenter uh, vMotion migration, right, of my VMs directly over to the OCS, OCVS environment and then reran the test. So it, 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 I didn't add it to make any changes to, to, the, to, the, to my database VMs other than the, the network connectivity settings, right, to get it into that environment so I could connect it to a client over there for the test. Sure. And what the, the reference that, that I had some questions in regards to is from our blog article that's over there on blogs.vmware.com, and it's entitled Leveraging the Full Power of Oracle Cloud VMware Solution and VMware vSphere. And we deal or dive into some performance uh, of an Oracle DB in a single on-premises VM versus multiple VMs, in other words, spreading out that workload. And I see that there, there's two sides of this as far as the graph, where we have a little bit of a performance hit as far as migrating that workload in a single instance up to OCVS, and then a, a performance increase once we increase the number of VMs, even compared with the same number of VMs running on-prem. So in other words, one-to-one, -one, we take a little bit of a hit, but if we have the same number, eights referenced here in the particular article, we see a performance increase. So Todd, uh, let's dive into that a little bit. Why do we see the hit for the single VM and why do we see the performance increase 
for the same number of VMs if we distribute that workload in OS3. I'm, the acronym city is going to get me today, guys. OCVS. Say that 10 times fast before I start reversing everything around. So the, the, there were some slight differences between the configurations of the of, uh, 64 course per socket. Uh, the storage setup uh, was similar in both local storage, but the uh, the, uh, uh, the NVMe device is a little faster. Yeah. So they're, they're generation newer, basically. So the storage is better. And that's, I, my conclusion or my, my best guess is that the network connectivity between my client and host on-prem was very simple. They're in the same switch in the same rack. Um, whereas in the OCVS instance, um, the, the client VM that I was using was on a, a different, a slightly different, uh, was on a, it was definitely a different rack. I don't, I don't know the details. I wasn't in their cloud, but um, there was a little bit of, of infrastructure between my client and that. So I think that showed up as a little bit slower in a low so where you're, the effective of where you were doing your jump box and where it was yeah. within the, the data pathway to where the DB lied could have had enough of, a, of an impact. Yeah, a little bit. So in both of the results are really close. Um, and and we tried to get the configurations as close as possible. Um, but, you know, it's not, we've only got we've only got what we've got in the lab to a certain extent. And I, I couldn't source exactly the same thing as what um, OCVS had. So we felt like the, the results were, were good and showed that, yeah, indeed, performance is essentially the same uh, with, with a little bit of variation due to some, uh, you know, smaller factors um, due to differences in configuration. Fair enough. Yeah, and and just to add to that, you know, one VM versus a, a host that, that's fully loaded, I think the fully loaded is a much better represent, representation of what the customer is going to encounter. You're typically, typically not going to run a single VM on, on one host. And I think that's where the, uh, uh, you know, we see the advantages of performance really, really come out. Oh, absolutely. Right. Wherever we can distribute that, that workload and then distribute that workload amongst hosts or fault domains, uh, not only increasing performance, but then fault tolerance and high availability. Bob, you talked about migrations previously, and, and of course the solution allows an easy pathway for a customer that might be looking to decrease their on-premises data center operational costs or consume those data center operational costs in a different billable model and moving over to a hyperscaler where we can build these, these services as all together. However, I want to take it a step further or, or we, that that's, that's keeping the database, let, let's say it is in a like-for-like like service. So if I have Oracle running on-prem, I can easily mi migrate that workload, if it is vSphere-based, over to the, this OCVS solution in, in a seamless way. But are customers looking at this as far as data mobility from a vSphere to vSphere-like platform, or are they looking at it as a stepping point to migrate what perhaps was that on-premises database to Oracle native DB services? I think I think it's a mix of all of the above. 
Um, and part of part of the goals of, of the uh, benchmark, as well as the white paper, was to show that you can do exactly what you described. This is a like like migration without having to to worry about um, uh, performance. But if the customers say on an Exadata platform and they want to leverage a hybrid solution being, uh, you know, running their database on OCI and then the app stack on our, on our uh, platform, then that, that's perfectly fine. I think this just gives the customer a lot of choice as to what, what fits their bill the best. Certainly. We talk about cloud smart, right? Uh, an initiative mm -hmm. that, that we have been uh, on the pathway here for, for at, le at least a year. Uh, and, we want to, to be able to put that customer in the in the best possible position to know their workloads on their own, whether that's running it on-prem, whether that's taking what is an existing on-prem stack and simply migrating it over to a vSphere-based hypervisor, in this instance, OCVS, or you know using that as that stepping point to migrate that data as it's necessary over to refactoring it to cloud-native if they choose. Yeah, exactly. Hey, Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. And, and just, you made a great point there around cloud smart. And that's, and that was actually another goal of this, um, this study was that we didn't just benchmark Oracle, we benchmarked SQL Server and migrated that up over to the, to OCS in the same manner. And the, the, the purpose of that was to show that we could run any, any, that you could run any uh, enterprise workload on OCVS. Um, and, you know, I just say we, we have a great, a great um, multi-cloud story, but, you know, sometimes it doesn't make sense to distribute those databases across multiple um, hyperscalers, whether that be native or, 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 or a you know, VMware-based solution. So if latency is a concern, then uh, you can run SQL Server and Oracle on OCVS, and if that fits your, your uh, requirements, then, then you, you know, more power to, to that solution. Yeah. One of, one of the things that, uh, you know, I've been exposed to in the last month or so is AI ML models, right. And how the enterprise is segmenting out your AI ML compute uh, resourcing where they want to keep some of the workload on-prem because the models or whatever they're doing is, you know, is critical and they don't want that shared out in the cloud. And then you have other bits of it, like the database or whatever that, that, that ends up in the cloud and that's okay. And so enterprises are actually coming back to VMware, really looking at how to tease apart their AML strategy. I'm just wondering if you guys, I would assume that Oracle being the database business and really caring about that, that, that that would be something that they would be into as well, right? Which is huge data sets, but how much of it has to be on-prem versus how much of it has to be uh, off-prem in the cloud or what they're allowed to do in the cloud. Do you guys get any exposure into what's happening with AI and ML with that regard? Well, as, as far as the services are around uh, AI and ML, and this actually speaks to any of the services that are offered by the, uh, by the hyperscalers, um, you know, and certainly that's a benefit with OCVS is that you can leverage the OCI services. But we, we do see, uh, you know, customers looking at best of breed for say MLMI and then ML or AI. 
and then uh, best of breed for analytics, best of breed for, for, for whatever service. And that doesn't necessarily hold true be, because, you know, it's, what, what are the requirements of the deployment? You know, using the best of breed across multiple hyperscalers, whether that be native or one of our solutions, may not, may not be the best fit. So, so we're, we're seeing that, um, you know, what, what is, what is the best, um, landing zone for, for enterprise workloads? How can I leverage those services that are co-located, um, by the, the hyperscalers like o OCI? And, uh, that's how the decisions are kind of being predicated, not, not looking at best of breed. That'd be sort of akin to, you know, buying a car with, uh, you know, I need a Ferrari engine and, a and a Ford transmission and a whatever interior. How do you deploy that? I just support that. Uh, the common platform that we have with vSphere kind of answers all, all, all those questions. And, and again, gives the customers choice wherever they want to land. Right, makes sense. Uh, other question I had floating around in my head when I was listening to all this is, uh, is the sales process itself, right? And like, how much is Oracle, much like VMware sells SaaS now, like even though it's, we're, we're billing, uh, we're billing cycles and we're selling vSphere in SaaS, uh, SaaS models. Um, how much of what Oracle's doing also lends itself to their SaaS billing model, right? Where, you know, there is, there is a lot of companies that want to move customers into SaaS environments. And so if I'm buying an Oracle product, uh, they want to sell you into that SaaS revenue stream. And this is an easy way for them to do that because vSphere's there. They have, you know, they, they already have, uh, you have on-prem product, you're trying to move them into SaaS. And so here, you know, we have uh, this product, OCBS, that allows you to quickly do that, and then they're in the SaaS game. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, having that SaaS model available is certainly another uh, a plus. Um, it, this is sold by 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 Oracle, and, and uh, uh, you know, we, we help out obviously wherever we can. Um, so yeah. that's you know that's about the extent of that of yeah just that. just the extent of that i you know i just look at how listen to how big oracle is still and larry ellison still you know the, the the fourth richest person on the planet or some number like that which is really striking and you realize that okay there's a lot of backhand pressure here just like we are always trying to move people into a SaaS footprint and then they capture i don't know if it's how much of it is capturing you know uh compute in your cloud uh, they're selling compute cycles but really, they're selling they're selling Oracle license cycles, and this is the this is a great way for them to to stay in business and keep you know keep the customer in their corner by offering you know OCVS right. It's a it's an easy sale, right? And I don't I don't know maybe maybe that's just the way it happens now. But uh, I I see Oracle. As a as a partner that customers can't walk away from, but they want to get into the oh, cloud. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's the way to do yeah. that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, another reason why you know we did this co-logoed white paper with with Oracle, AMD, and and uh, Deloitte, and you know a lot of people had kind of uh, uh, you know marvelled at the fact that we able to get all these people to to co-logo the white paper. But the 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 fact of the matter is, it's a great story for 
for all of us. And, you know, re regardless of the SaaS model or whatever the selling model is, Oracle is so prevalent in, in the enterprise space that, you know, it, it's really beneficial for, for VMware to, to be partnering heavily with them. And I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about competitors here on this podcast. I forgot what the rules are here. So stop me if I ask the wrong thing. But like, if you look at other people that would be in this space competing with uh, Oracle, uh, I got to imagine it's IBM and we do stuff with IBM's cloud as well, right? Where they, they have a DB, they, they sell DB services to their enterprise. Are there other people that, does Oracle even have any serious cloud competitors, right? The, uh, there's obviously MongoDB and the DBs, the, the new DBs, but just wondering who else is doing this they would even compete with them because they're just so big well, hard to say and, and hard to answer because we really don't want to get into uh uh compare and contrast right you know, other than you know we 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 work with uh, all the major hype hyperscalers and uh right. you know again you know we believe the differentiation with with ocvs is you know, among other things, is the, the ability to to for the customer to fully manage their systems and and really achieve zero zero refactoring. Okay, I'll ask another question. How prominent is Oracle these days in the database market? Anybody know you know what their total markets so share of market is? Are they still the market leader in databases? I believe so. I, I I was actually trying to look up some of that information a couple of months ago, and, and I haven't seen any of the the latest papers. So I I, right. I can't attest to that one way or the other. Todd Todd may be uh, be able to to talk to that. Todd, when it comes to you know one of the things that I'm I'm reading through that we have linked it over to, and of course. Oracle has a corresponding blogs over on blogs.oracle.com on the OCVS solutions. And one of the, the, the subparagraphs that they call out is core density, right? The core density offerings that, that are available specifically for the AMD platform of 32, 64, or 128 cores per host, right? I'm thinking 128 cores per host that we can get some really dense workloads on there. And as someone that does performance testing, where do we draw the line or what have you seen as far as using higher density host as far as CPU count versus spreading that workload out? In other words, am I better off to, and I understand this gets a little, a little bit of failure domains and whatnot, but from a pure performance perspective, is it safe to assume that we would be better with more cores and less hosts or more hosts and less cores? Um, you know, it, it depends a, a lot, of course. This is the typical performance answer. It right. depends. Uh, yeah. The, uh, the so memory, sure. Yeah, me memory comes into play a lot in these discussions, right? So like how much memory can you get per host? Can, can can dictate things. But assuming you can get enough memory on your host to satisfy that side of it, you know, more cores per host is usually a great thing. I'm able to push, you know, lots of performance, uh, you know, data, get additional data performance out as additional cores are added to a host. So like I've tested with these AMD hosts with, uh, you know, with the, well, the Milan is one that we did these tests with. It was a 64 cores per socket. And then the next generation is Genoa has 96. And then 
Um, Bergamo, which I think is announced or is out now, has, a, has 128. So, and I, I've tested with all those and, and I can get scalability as you go up. Um, so, so in general, that's good. One of the things that's interesting is that AMD has these uh, X processors. They have a, the, the uh, uh, Milan X processor that has additional cache memory um, added onto the processor. And those give you a nice boost for uh, database performance. I've seen uh, additional, uh, get a good uh, scaling of that with, with Oracle and SQL Server, for example. So in some of these cases where you know, you're licensed per core at the database level or at other software levels, it makes sense to go with these processors that have the bigger caches because you can get more bang for your buck per core, per core. Mm. in those cases. It's something I mean, this is all as it depends. You have to try you'd have to try right. that with your specific workload. But I'm I'm just saying in general that's well there's really a, a couple of follow-ups with that, right? So one, I would think that with this solution, again, we had talked about that doing that one-on-one -on -one testing, right? Where we don't necessarily have to deploy a full-blown three-node cluster, where we could, if we wanted to do total due diligence on this, deploy multiple single node instances and run that workload on it to see what the performance variations would be, right? Whereas if you would do that traditionally on an on-premises data center, unless you had a really good relationship with your OE yeah. or your, your channel partner, that could get prohibitively expensive real quick. My other follow-up with that would be is let's, I mean, workloads change, right? This is the, the, the ever change, the, the, certainly the era of ever-changing workloads. And let's say we spec out, you know, a, a six-node cluster that, that has 128 cores, and then the next new AMD revision comes in, right? That new chip architecture is, is out there. Do I need to spin up a, a separate cluster and then migrate through traditional, you know, vMotion over to that cluster, or can I add certain net new nodes into an existing cluster that are out there with this um, solution? How does let, let's take this forward to you know, let's call it six month or or year two operations when that database intensifies, or through M and A we pick up a you know a mega database that needs a lot of storage capacity that wasn't factored into that initial workload criteria that made us pick the host profiles that we did. How, how do we life cycle capacity in? Well, so you, you can add, uh, you know, hosts of the next generation in with the, the current generation cluster. Um, you, if you want to have complete, uh, you know, vMotion compatibility, which you would. Right. Flags you have to go with like the... You have to go all, our, the, all, all our same on-prem rules, I'm sure, apply here. But yeah. I'm just curious if there's any unique intricacies to OCVS when it comes to bringing those additional hosts on board with it with a newer proc. I'm not aware of anything that would be specific to their cloud um, that would make this more complicated <laughs> than it is. And, and there's a you know, as you know, we have a lot of flexibility with our platform with vMotion to be able to migrate things around. So I'm saying it's there's some complexities in understanding the details, but um, at the end of the day, you're able to move your workloads over pretty much seamlessly um, to the new generation. You just have to work through exactly what you want to do. Um, if you want to 
you know, entertain some, you know, brief downtime to, in order to make sure you upgrade your virtual machines, the latest virtual hardware and get that latest thing. Or if you're okay with, with staying and, and uh, moving over. So, so some CPU generations, there's big differences um, in instruction sets and it makes a big difference. And then in, in other generations, maybe there's not. So, you know, you can, you can decide, but most people can usually afford a little bit of downtime to, you know, shut the VMs down, move them over to a new host power back up in a planned, in a planned way. Um, so it's, it's not, not a huge deal. So is there any other factor? I mean, you do performance testing at, at, for a living. Is there, as it relates to this particular solution, was there any data points or um, let's just call it um, unknowns that were out there or uh, dare I even say anomalies that came across in your testing that, you looked at and went, oh, wow, that, that's that's really key as far as IO thro throughput or CPU utilization or memory ballooning or any other factor that came in as part of that testing that the customer should be aware of as it relates to CBS. There wasn't any, I mean, the most surprising thing was the, the OCBS storage was, was that much better to make a difference. Um, and we're attributing that to the the next generation of that NVMe backend. Yeah, they had newer NVMe's than, than I did. Um, we were able to do this testing really quickly. I think we had the systems for like a week and a half, and uh, we're able to move you know move the VMs over because I'd already done the testing on prem, and so we just I did a cross vCenter migration like I mentioned, and then uh, cloned the VM out to the number that I needed, and we ran through the tests uh, pretty uneventfully. So it was. Um, everything was good. There wasn't, there wasn't anything, you know, sometimes you go into performance tests and yeah, you run into issues, you've got to troubleshoot. Right. Sure. In this case, we really didn't have any, um, any issues. Matt, Matt, this is, this, it's just, it's just mind blowing to listen to this because I haven't been around the CPUs that much. And I'm just looking at, you know, online and AMD, Epic, EPYC, Genoa, you know, 3.1 gigahertz, 64 cores, 128 threads for like 3,500 bucks, right? Well, you, get you a, think about that, right? The, the, like the, the core density and then the backplane to support all of that with, right. with next gen NVMe throughput and ooh. yeah. But, but to his Todd's point to test now, you could just put the whole infrastructure right there on a single machine and just run the test because there's so many cores there that you don't actually have to put it to too many machines. It's yeah, just, like the two terabyte bytes of memory that are the standard memory profile for, for these denser hosts. Yeah. Right. Yeah. These are, these are two socket hosts that we're working with, which is, that's the part that blows my mind. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. doubled it. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of cores in two, for two sockets. Yeah, if you have that that application out there that hasn't migrated from socket to cores as of yet, uh, <laughs> this, this might be a win all around, right? You could uh, certainly the density there for, with what you can get out of two sockets now is absolutely incredible. Yeah, yeah you know, and this that that might actually be a good segue for kind of Todd to talk about how we're leveraging the AMD architecture because you, you guys are mentioning. You know, increase core counts, and you know, fundamentally, we point out that you just can't continue to add um, cores without contention, having cash contention. Sure. So there is a you know pretty ingenious way that that AMD came up and that we leveraged. So, Todd, I'm going to turn it over to you. Yeah. So with with Epic, one of the, the big thing that one of the big things that that AMD did was they changed the way the caches are laid out 
on the cores. So traditionally, a single socket had a single uh, L3 cache. But with Epic, they, they now have multiple L3 cache caches within each processor. So you kind of have these mini domains within. So the not only is it on die, but then it's sectored on the die itself. Yes. So certain, so certain cores are kind of grouped, not are kind of, they are grouped with their own L3. So like each eight core. Or how they did the implementation cores per LL3 cache. But um, the point is that there's this difference. And so what we did was we made in, in starting in, in uh, ESX uh, 7.0 U2. So this is like a year and a half ago. We introduced a scheduler enhancement where the scheduler ESXi scheduler is now aware of these differences and will make scheduling decisions based around that. So it ends up being more efficient and it uh, is able to take advantage of the cores and it gives you an additional, it depends on the workload, of course, um, you know, 10 to 15 to 20% performance boost um, because of the scheduling advantage that we have. So in the, in the paper that, that Bob and I published uh, specifically with the, uh, with Oracle and SQL Server, we saw a, about a 10% uh, boost um, from using this, um, uh, this scheduler enhancement. So, so this scheduler enhancement is, is default. You know, uh, So it's not like there, there's a flag on the installer or, of course, in this particular deployment, it's aware and ready to go that out of the box. Is there anything on the guest that needs enabled for, for this to be taken advantage of? I think we might have lost Todd there for a second. Bob, are you aware of if there's anything yeah. that needs to be enabled on the guest? No. But by default, it's it's enabled, and there's nothing on the guest that needs to be enabled or disabled. Um, when during the testing, Todd was able to uh, disable it, disable the optimizations only so that we can get the the uh, so performance. To see the recursion, open. sure, right. But what's the advantage? Yeah, exactly. So it, it's 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 baked into uh 7.0 update 2 and beyond i think todd you back i think yeah. todd's having some l3 performance cache issues of his own there yeah. he is now we're, now we're back and back up to speed and and todd if you you feel free Sorry. to turn Maybe off your camera yeah i think that might help i'll turn it off yeah just feel free to turn off your camera. That way you get better bandwidth here on us uh, if you have a network problems. But yeah, and we're mostly audio on this podcast, so no big deal. So yeah, sorry about that. Um, yeah, so the so the L3 cache, so with the new schedule, we get this uh, this boost. We're able to show that um, with the testing. But this is well, the point I was trying to make, I think when I got cut off, is that this is the default parameter or the default way the scheduler works now. So there's nothing that uh, you have to go in and do to enable this. We turned it off and did some tests to, sh to illustrate, hey, we're getting this performance boost. But that's something that's um, that's that's audit. It's the default, like I said. So, so you'll be getting that. Um, all customers will be getting that that are using the AMD Epic processors. Todd, Bob, we had talked how close we are to Explore with just 26 days away. Is there sessions on this topic at Explore? Will either of you be presenting? If a, a, a customer or a partner is out there and listening along to this particular podcast is, and they're going to be attending Explore, is there a particular session that you would advise them or sessions to advise them to attend? Well, for sure, they should attend our session. 
So oh, yeah, we, we that were, session we number were, is. Um, I don't have that handy, but uh, if you search on Todd or, or my name, it, it'll it'll come up. I don't. I don't even have the. Uh, I don't. Gold sand the, being just as you would think. G O L D S A N D or Muirhead M U I R H E A D. Yeah, you have a better yeah, chance of yeah. spelling Bob's name than mine, so you probably probably remember yeah. that one. <laughs> <laughs> but but yes, there are a number of sessions. Oracle is actually sponsoring our session. Uh, there's also going to be events scheduled around uh, around the. Uh, OCVS sessions. So following our session, I believe uh, AMD, Oracle, Deloitte, and VMware will be ho hosting a happy hour, although it's two hours, not just one hour. So from five to seven, right before uh, right before the the party. D does that um, party so have a high host count or high high host and core count? Right. Yeah. <laughs> It does, and and it's optimized for for our uh, customers. Yeah, optimized for customers and for workload. Fantastic. Yeah, and uh, our white paper. I believe there'll be uh, you'll be able to scan QR codes in the AMD booth, Oracle booth, and our booth, of of course. And you'll be able to, you'll have direct links to the paper that we just just released. We'll throw this in the show notes, but for those that are listening along, it, the session number is Charlie Echo India Bravo two nine nine two Lima Victor Sam C I B C E I B two nine nine two L V S is Bob and Todd's session that is being sp sponsored on Oracle on this topic. Uh, sign up there in the uh, the content catalog. Add that to your session builder for Explore this year if you are interested in this topic. Uh, Matt, thanks for that. But you know, I actually should add that we, we I don't have the details yet, but our session has also been accepted into Oracle Cloud World, which will be happening you know the following month. So we'll we'll be happy to uh, to update. You know the details as far as the uh, the session, session ID, and times and dates, and even in, in the even in the blog that Todd posted, because there's so much activity around the white paper and the sessions, uh, he's updating um, all that information so it's all you know in one location if if someone's looking for it. Eric, as we near the top of the hour, I'm going to throw it back to you. What other questions do you have for Bob or Todd? Uh, I don't have a lot because uh, we are running to the top of the hour and we want to be respectful of everybody's time. So we'll transition to um, the barbecue report because, you know, I hear that one of the two of you are from Texas and uh, therefore Texas barbecue is, you know, right up there on the top, top of the land. So uh, we'll, we'll always ask, like, you know, go to, if you want to learn more, go read the blog article and uh, we'll put that in the comments to the podcast. So, you know, go look at that. Uh, and then uh, we'll, we'll do the barbecue report and we'll get Tony Foster in here from, uh, from, 
from Kansas out there where it's up and I've been told it's 105, but uh, let's go to uh, Todd first. We ask at the end of that, we, we do live stream on V barbecue. If you want to look at what Bob and Todd looks like, you can go to youtube.com slash V barbecue, B A R B E C U uh, E and check out what they look like. So you'll recognize them at explore, go to their session. Uh, so let's go with Todd, Todd, uh, where do you barbecue? Do you barbecue? And do you have a style you like? So I, I, I'm partial to Texas barbecue, of course. Um, the uh, So everybody's heard about Franklin's, I assume, in Austin. Yes, yes. Which I is have. great. Uh, it's really good, but it's almost impossible to to get. It's uh, it's too hard. So, so my recommendation instead is go to Terry Black's, uh, which is also in Austin, but it's uh, reasonable to get into. You can walk up and get in line and have some great barbecue in short order. Todd, I have an important question for you. And, and I you take your time on this one. Texas chili, beans or no beans? Okay, so this is a big question. Um, it, it is. This right, is a so, point of contention. I have seen people try to go up and die on this hill. <laughs> so I, I agree that technically it's not chili once you put beans into it but i do like i like it it uh, it's good it tastes good I, I like it but but yeah it's not really chili as far as that's that's the proper answer it's a proper I, 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 answer todd that's good they're both they're both ways are good yeah. Oh, <laughs> I'm going to have to go Wikipedia that. And then whoever is the author of the Wikipedia article, I'm going to yell at them, right? Because like, uh, you know, chili from my standpoint always had beans in it. But then I'm from the Northeast, right? Where, you know, we, we were starving and we didn't have that much beef. We didn't have cattle ranches in our backyard with oil fields. So maybe, you know, we just need the beans to stretch out uh, the, the red sauce with the meat. I don't know. Yeah. But uh and yeah. Bob's thoughts on all thing barbecue. Bob, what, what's your where are you you're located? If you don't mind sharing with with our audience, and what's your favorite barbecue? Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm uh, located in in Northern California. The accent may say I'm from New York, which I am, but I've been out here for forty years. Um, my kids have been born out here, so they all root for the wrong sports teams. But not not I don't get very much good barbecue out in California. I maybe uh, may have trouble walking the streets after this, but I love Texas barbecue. I love Kansas city. You know, I love barbecue period. You know, it's interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Well, you need to go down to Santa Maria, California, down there, out in the cow. Yeah. Cow fields down there. They got some good barbecue down there, but they don't do, they don't do barbecue sauce or anything. It's all just meat on a grill. You know, they, they, they believe down there that if you, if you put anything on your meat, you're not barbecuing it. It should all come from the coals. Right. And the, and the smoke from the fire, uh, they're not a big, they'll do some rubs down there in Santa Maria, you know, but, uh, other than that, there's a place in Santa Maria. I can't remember the name. I want to say saddle rack, but I don't think that's it. Um, but there are some really good yeah. barbecue places down in Southern California that you could, we're going to have to send Bob on a, a road trip, you know, when he goes down there. And gets I'm, I'm in, I'm in. There you Not go. a big fan of tri-tip though, but. Uh, oh, well, yeah. If you don't like tri-tip, then don't go down there because yeah. that's, that's pretty much what they serve. You know, you could get a good mm. steak too, but there you go. Tony Foster, I know you joined. It's 105 in Kansas. What, what's up there? Did you just put your meat out, <laughs> on the, out, out in the sun and it just cooks? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, you just throw it out on the uh, hood of uh, your car 
it'll sizzle for you. You'll have uh, food in about an hour. Yeah, that's not true. I tried that. You know, you actually need like 140 degrees, you know, on your metal, but maybe, maybe 105 will get up to 140 on the, on the metal. Uh, you could uh, just open up the uh, door and you can bake it inside then if you want to do that's it that right. way. You could, you could bake it. You could bake it. Yes. Any, any sous vide off the, the uh, coast of Florida right now, if anyone's interested in that. <laughs> nice. Oh. Yeah. Nice. Uh, actually, here a couple days ago, I did uh, cheddar brats on the grill and made a uh, killer onion sauce to go with them on the grill. Start out with a base of onions and add a little bit of oil, get them uh, nice and caramelized, and then uh, um, start making a sauce, just a touch of barbecue sauce, uh, just to simplify the cooking. Um, some garlic, throw in uh, a little bit of whiskey um, and a few other uh, spices in there. Let that simmer down and you get this great uh, onion reduction sauce that is killer on brats. So brats, for those people that don't know, are like sausages, German sausages, you know. So yes. what's a cheddar brat? That's like a cheese brat with like infused yeah. cheese, cheese bits in it? Yep. So when they process it, they uh, throw chunks of cheddar in there, mix it all up, and then mix shove it, it in the uh, sausage casing. Tony, when you serve this to your guests, do you give them the business card of a cardiovascular surgeon? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I do know a few of those. Um, but... Yeah, you don't you gotta, eat a lot. You got to get ready for the winter. You got to get ready for the winter. Those, those Kansas swept fields get pretty chilly out there. Right. It's worth it. Absolutely. Bob, Todd, thanks for coming on today. We appreciate your presence here. We're looking forward to your session at Explore and the updates that are coming to the blog post. Stay tuned over on blogs.vmware.com. And, of course, additional content over on the corresponding blogs.oracle.com as it relates to OCVS. All right. Wait, uh, appreciate Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Todd. Thanks, Bob. Uh, go get your Explore tickets. It's going to be a great time. Till then, go get some barbecue, and we'll be back again next week. As always, Wednesday, 12 to 1. If you want to drop in live, we'll be